Everyone, Saranai. Welcome, everyone, to another Poya session. Warmest welcome to all of you. As you can see, our topic today is why it's difficult to renunciate the world. And today is Il Poya. And of course, there's always significant events on different Poya days. And so today we commemorate the Vivarana uh, for Maitri or Mateya Buddha Bodhisattva to become the next future Buddha. And that, that occurred on Ilpoya. And also it was the first time Buddha, Gautama Buddha had sent out about 60 arahats to spread the Dhamma. That also happened on Ilpoya after one of the, the rains retreats. And of course, uh, another significant event is Venerable Sari Buddha, his passing away in Parinibbana. So he was, as we know, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, and he passed away. So he was foremost at wisdom. So today we have we have him on our, our mind as well as we go through this session. So what we'll cover today is we'll go through our usual tips and reminders. Uh, we'll have a bit of a, a discussion about why it is difficult to enunciate. Well, while we're looking at this, it does link with the other things that we've been meditating on and spending our time on during each of these Poya sessions. Then we'll introduce the Halidikani Sutta. So many of you will know the Halidikani Sutta and will have meditated on it, but take it fresh. Uh, this is uh, looking at it from a different perspective, kind of going more into the Sutta and drawing on some of the things that are quite helpful in, in, in practice, in daily life. And we'll look at Venerable Mahakatana's explanation, so his detailed explanation about it. And then we'll look at how do we actually meditate or even just contemplate the, the teachings in the Halidikani Sutta. And after that, if we have time, we'll, we'll uh, either meditate or we'll end with questions and answers. So our usual tips for the session, uh, we keep an open mind. Uh, of course, you know, some of these Buddha's words and Venerable Mahakachana. We've heard these words before, but we keep an open mind just to see whether we can peel away more, more of the layers that we're trying to do in, in developing the Noble Eightfold Path. Be okay with not understanding everything. Uh, remember that we are all seekers. We're all walking this path together. So we're inspiring each other by coming together on Poya to do so. To listen to the Buddha's words, to listen to Venerable Mahakachana today. And we apply ourselves to the meditation. So there might be moments where I might pause and, and get us to, to just lift the mind a little bit. And then uh, when we're doing that, maybe it might be an opportunity to use our own examples. Or even as we're going through some of the parts of this particular sutta, I'll give some examples, but there might be things that really resonate in your own mind. And those are the things that are your own examples from your, your daily life, your own situation. And it's quite good to contemplate from that perspective, use that opportunity. And of course, we have good wishes to everyone, everyone that has helped us to come here today, to all the, the people that are in our lives supporting us and everyone else in the world, we have good wishes to everyone. So why is it difficult to renunciate the world? I think... The question that normally comes up when we learn the Dhamma, when we practice the Dhamma, is always how do we balance our lives as, as householders? And part of this session is really looking at why we have so much difficulty, particularly as lay people, 
the container that we, we have is actually quite complex and we have so many responsibilities and duties and, and we're pulled in many, many diff different directions. And it's not always conducive to this Dhamma part. It's actually making it more difficult. And essentially what we're finding difficult in balancing is really giving up the world, seeing with wisdom why, why Buddha says to renunciate the world. And as lay people in practice, trying to figure out well, what is it that we're doing when we walk the noble eightfold path? So what, even when it comes to understanding Dhamma, like developing our practice, we are so entangled with the world, particularly as lay people. And it can still apply to monastics, depending on how much they, they go back into knowing what's happening in the world. But for us, we're very much entangled in it. So it's largely about how much delight do we take in the world? How much are we interested in what is happening in the world? And then how much do we prioritize what is happening in each of our worlds, our jobs, our families, all the things in our community? And so in that way, knowingly or not, knowingly, we're, we're quite bound up, we're quite tied to this world, the world that we, we create for ourselves. And, and beyond that as well. And so as a result of that, we have a lot of concern we have a lot of concern for what is happening in our immediate world, but we're also concerned about what is happening in other countries, other places. If we look at what's happening with the pandemic now, it's very much like that. You can clearly see we, we look after ourselves, but then we look at the news and we see what is happening out there. So it becomes very, very difficult to renunciate because we have care and concern for people all over the world. So it becomes a massive problem that inevitably, if we keep clinging, if we keep being interested, if we crave to know, if we crave to be bonded to people, to objects, to things, to ideas, to these views, then it becomes very difficult for us to relinquish. We keep coming back to samsara. And so part of looking at this sutra today is to see how we do that, like the different ways that we do that. So as you keep practicing, many of you will already know that it's already apparent. We know that we're quite caught up in the world. And so we need more right view. That's why we, we do a lot of these meditations is to correct our view, bring it back to right view, relinquish the wrong view and uh, develop more wisdom to walk this path. And, and also as a result of that, develop more sattva, more conviction towards the Buddha's teachings and those of the, the noble arahants because then we, we really know the challenges that we're really facing. So more honesty, like when you look at this particular sutta, it's a really good one for each individual because it, it's a lot about honesty to oneself about, you know, most of the time, most of us want to have our cake and eat it. We want to indulge in our families and our sensual pleasures and, and our life goals and everything, but then we still also want to walk the Noble Eightfold Path. But it doesn't work like that. With the, it, it talked about the streams, you know, you, the stream that goes away from the world, it goes upstream, not downstream, the, the way everybody else is going. So we, we cannot actually have our cake and eat it. And to developing the noble eightfold path, it starts with right view, then we know it goes to right intention. Right intention means letting go, renunciating, chaga. And we also, you know, have good zeal in order to 
uh, have non-ill will, non-cruelty. And so there's a lot of abandoning in this path. And so if you have the misapprehension in walking that this path, that it that it it can be balanced. I think as you're training, you try to balance, but as you head towards Nibbana, you let go and you let go from wisdom, not from by force or by will. You just understand things much more clearly. You see how it really is. And so when you have sufficient wisdom, which we can all admit that we don't right now, then you start to see the danger of the world. The more you see the danger of the world, the easier it becomes to renunciate and that you don't fall for the lies and deceptions of things that you see, things that you, you, you touch, all those sorts of things. And you see the fragility of the world. So a lot of the perceptions that when Buddha corrects them, it's actually to see it very, very clearly. So even last Poya, our meditation to look at Panya Aditana is actually to be able to start renunciating the world because you see this world is not uh, only false, it's deceiving you because it's always shattering. When we look at the elements, when we look at certain things that we meditate on, when we meditated on the, the painful practice with slow realization, we, we meditated on, on how we see this body, how we see the, the physical nutriment. And when you see it clearly, you realize Actually, you can't cling, crave to, to, to something that is, is always leading to aging, sickness and death. It's always shattering and we reconstruct thinking it'll be okay and it's not. So this is the challenge. This is the challenge for us. We keep going back to our usual tendency of seeking pleasure, uh, going for the wrong things and coming up short every time. And Buddha always keeps bringing us back, you know, look, see this more clearly, don't fall for that. And a lot of it, as we go through this, you'll see it's, it's a lot to do with how we take things as me and mine. Atta, Atta thinks it can control everything, can make it last and hold on to the happiness, the pleasure, but it's not true. And so uh, what we do is we keep continuously falling. If we keep coming from Atta, if we die at the moment of strongly holding on to me and my, my making, we go straight to the hell realms. It's always lower realms when it comes to poor sila and also the wrong view. And so have that at the forefront of your mind as, as we go through this. So we'll begin by looking at the introduction. With the introduction, we'll go through uh, different aspects, such as just an overview, uh, a bit about We'll also look at uh, the architecture for this sutta and then we'll launch straight into, into the verse and then into what Venerable Mahakachana has to say. So with this uh, sutta, what this actually is about is there is this householder called Haladakani. He's actually quite skilled. So he's, he's a lay person that's very interested and he asks many questions. So this is one of the questions that he asks Venerable Mahakachana. And he comes back and asks about different uh, sayings of the Buddha as well. So in this time, uh, Venerable Mahakachana is dwelling in uh, this Radhagara, and this is in Avanti and on this mountain. And this was where he normally would dwell. So when you read the suttas, Venerable Mahakachana, it's not always with the Buddha. He's actually dwelling in Avanti. And 
As we know, Venerable Mahakachana, he's the foremost at explaining in detail the meaning of something that Buddha says in a brief statement. And a lot of the time, the monks would come and ask if he was around certain communities. The monks would come and ask directly after the Buddha um, would get up and, and leave. Uh, and also lay people such as uh, Haladikani would come and ask. And also individually, they would come and ask. And so he was very venerated for this ability. And so when you read, read the suttas, you, you see the, the honour that he's been given. Even Saka, the king of the Devas, had a lot of fondness and respect for Venerable Mahakachana. So he's very skilled. And for that reason, the Buddha uh, nominated him uh, for this quality. In his teachings, you find that he talks a lot about sense restraint. It was an area that he was very skilled at and very keen on. And so when you look at his explanations, even in this sutta, he brings it back to sense restraint a lot and the sense faculties and how we should guard them. So the lay householder Haladikani, he comes to Venerable Mahatachana and asks him the question about this specific verse. And it comes from the questions of Margandhya. And we find this sutta in the Sutta Nipata. So if you remember in that particular teaching, Margandhya's father offered the Buddha uh, his daughter's hand in marriage. And at that time, the Buddha turned, uh, turned it down, explaining that he had overcome all the worldly pleasures, that he didn't, he was no longer in household life, he'd given it all up, and he could not be tempted. So he actually said something quite direct about Margandhya, and Margandhya took it in the wrong way because she was quite conceited about her looks. Apparently, she was quite beautiful. So in responding to Margandhya's parents' questions, particularly her father, the Buddha describes a lot of the practice around peace, around having renounced the world, yet renunciated the world. So Margandhya's parents were very fortunate. They were very highly attained already. They had like sharp spiritual faculties. So they immediately understood the Buddha's teaching in that particular uh, discourse. And so they understood that it's important not to become attached to anything, no matter how nice it appears. Otherwise, you just be subject to, to pain, dukkha, ongoing misery over and over again. So they understood that. So at that time, they both attained anagami, non-return, path and fruit of the non-returner. But their daughter, Margandhya, uh, she was too proud, and so she did not achieve anything at all. She was actually quite underdeveloped in terms of her spiritual faculties, so she couldn't understand the real meaning of those words, and she thought that the Buddha was insulting her. So there was one particular verse from that teaching that Haladikani was very interested in. So this is what we're going to look at today. Haladikani actually wanted to know the meaning behind that verse, and he wanted to understand how to practice it. And so Venerable Makachana, his answer, because it's to a lay person, it's very appropriate for us. It, it, it's something that we are able to, to penetrate if we, if we understand what he is saying. So when it comes to the importance of this food, though, it helps us to look at how we cannot take delight in the world. So one of the perceptions that Buddha always corrects is this Savaloka Anigaratna Sanya, that instead of taking delight in the world, we, we don't take delight in it. So this particular sutta is very helpful for that. And when we contemplate this particular teaching, 
we also look at uh, how we can apply it in practical in practical ways because when he goes into the more detailed explanation Venerable Makshana actually almost like tells us this is what it sounds like and this is what it sounds like if you if you give that up so that will become clearer as we go along because what we do when we take delight in the world is we say no matter whether it's good or bad whatever it is that we're interested in it even if we're interested with aversion there is still we still crave crave to know even so for lay people, it is definitely more difficult because we don't have the relative safety of having ordained. So when you ordain, there are many rules in the Benaya that guard you from getting too intimate with, with lay householders. There are moral agreements about how you live together. And it's almost like the fast track to consciously renouncing the world. Whereas in lay life, we don't have moral agreements, like we have different religions that have morality, but not everyone agrees. And some people don't believe in having any moral virtue. It's not explicit. And so we don't have any rules that say you can't look at the television or you're not meant to indulge in music or things like that. Only if we nominate to take certain precepts, is that true? So where we pasture is wide open. We can do whatever we like with our, with our sense faculties. And so that's where the risk is that we can take too much delight in the world without knowing that it's dangerous. So when we look at this, uh, what really comes to the fore is that when you start to give up the world in its various guises, then what needs to be done is to see that we are leaning towards Nibbana when we renunciate the world. When we don't take so much interest in the world, when we don't value the world, then it culminates in the deathless. Ultimately, when we, when we like the Buddha, give up everything, then eventually that's what happens. So in this lifetime, what we're doing is we're prioritizing the practice of it, looking at where we go wrong, correcting it, trying to walk this path, trying to walk together on this path. So we also find that in this teaching, it ties in with many other things that we've looked at. So it will tie in with the four nutriments. It will tie in with the painful practice with slow realization that we've learned. It will tie in with Dadatopunyampavadati, so the profitable path, the Chunda Sutta that we meditated on last year. We'll find that it links with Pamada Vihari Sutta, dwelling uh, negligently or dwelling vigilantly. So these are the things we will touch on when we go through today. In terms of the Sutta architecture, it's very, very straightforward. The first bit begins with the question asked by Haladikani. Then there are three parts. So the first part, Venerable Mahakachan explains in a condensed statement. So he, he talks about consciousness finding its home in form, feeling, perception of volitional formations. And pretty much that's all he says after explaining that. So that's the first part. It's a condensed statement. You could say that it's actually a condensed statement or a short explanation that is appropriate to someone with very sharp faculties. That's all that person would need would be Ugatitanyu type person. So someone who can understand quite quickly because of their sharp faculties. So that's all they need. 
The next two parts are more like Nidesa, like Venerable Mahakachana gives more of an exposition, a longer explanation, and there's two distinct parts. He goes into a little bit more about the six sense, sense spheres and the sense restraints, so that's part two to explain this particular verse. And the third part is really about going into specific parts of Buddha's verse, four distinct terms that Buddha uses in order to look at it. And so someone who has uh, sort of like mild spiritual faculties, they may be able to grasp it. And so this is like Vipanchitanyu. Or if you need more guidance, like Neo, then maybe it could be this part three. Not sure. It's like someone with less, like more blunt faculties. Uh, the, the longer explanation helps. And so maybe this is why Ben Womakachana explains in this particular way. And he uses this particular system throughout most of his teachings. So what is this verse? The verse is, Anikitasari, having left home to roam without an abode. Game akupang munisatabani. In the village, the sage is intimate with none. Kamehi rito apurekarano. Rid of sensual pleasures without expectations, without future expectations. They would not engage people in dispute. So as always with, with these gathas, these verses, they're very good to memorize. A bit like what we were saying about even last point about Dadatopunyampavati, knowing the gatha is very helpful, whether it's in Pali or English or both, because you can meditate on these. So we're going to go uh, part by part looking at, uh, looking at this verse and understanding the meaning behind this particular verse. So we'll go through each of the three parts. So the first part, as we were looking at the sutta architecture, the first part is this condensed statement. So let's read this out. The form element, householder, is the home of consciousness. One whose consciousness is shackled by lust for the form element is called one who roams about in the home. The feeling element is the home of consciousness. One whose consciousness is shackled by lust for the feeling element is called one who roams about in a home. The perception element is the home of consciousness. One whose consciousness is shackled by lust for the perception element is called one who roams about in a home. And then lastly, the volitional formations element is the home of consciousness. One whose consciousness is shackled by the lust for the volitional formations element is called one who roams about in a home. It is in such a way that one roams about in a home. So Venerable Mahakachana here is basically talking about when Vijnana, consciousness, establishes itself on form, rupa, feeling, vedana, perception, sanya, and volitional formations, sankara. So where do we where do we know this from? It's essentially, we know this from the fact that when consciousness establishes, it, it actually activates dependent origination. The paticca samupada activates. And so we know this from the four nutriments. It blocks the doorways to nirvana. We go the wrong ways instead. If you remember this table, for the satrahara, the four nutriments, when we crave for these four nutriments, whether it's physical nutriment, contact as nutriment, mental volition as nutriment, or, or consciousness as nutriment, then what happens is this is how we sustain our present existence 
This is how we feed, you know, nourish ourselves. And it also is the means for us coming back into the world. That uh, essentially what happens is out of craving for these four nutrients, we want to be born again, whether it's in uh, the human realm, lower realms, or even the, the higher realms, depending on, on what, we, what we desire. So when it comes to this, as we know from the suttas, that lust for any of these four nutrients, that means there is nandi, because there is abhinandati, abhiwadati, adrasayatitati. We take delight, we welcome it, and we remain holding. So that's the tanha. So when vijnana becomes established down here in any of these four things, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, then we descend into name and form. And so when there's the descent into name and form, we have all these volitional formations, all the sankharas. And so that's how we produce another existence. We actually desire it. And so that's what this is really about, that this first explanation, this condensed statement is really about this, uh, what we have studied before. So it can be very, very straightforward if we understand the four nutrients. And so the idea is to apply vidya, energy, not to allow consciousness to swing and, and steady on any of these places. If we do so, and it establishes, then we have dependent origination. Because as we know, tanha leads to wanting to exist. Hold on a second. Just bear with me a second. Okay. So... If consciousness comes to exist, then we activate dependent origination. As we know, if there is craving, then we want to come to exist, bhava. If there is bhava, then what happens is there is birth. If there is birth, then there is old age, sickness, and death, and the whole mass of suffering again. So we continuously, if you look at what this goes down to, we go the wrong way. We have desire really for samsara. And then going the wrong way through hate, fear, and uh, delusion. So what is driving all of this, if we really see this in terms of this condensed statement, what he's, what he's really saying to us is if we desire and we activate or we keep having these wrong perceptions, these corruptions that we see suba, we see sukha, we see atta, and we see nita, then that will keep us coming back. And so that is what um, is, is something that Venerable Mahakachana is pointing to. So we block access to the wholesome part of it, which is the profitable directions. We know those to be metta, uh, karuna, udita, and upeka. So it's not easy for a layperson to be fully homeless. You know, when you look at this, it's not easy when you think about all our different priorities and everything. So we humble ourselves to know that as lay practitioners, we have many challenges in, in household life. And so we make effort towards this path. I think that's where this all comes down to. So we won't spend too long on this one. We'll, we'll move on. So the second part of Venwal Mahakachana's explanation is all about these three different terms. He talks about roaming about homeless, and we'll, we'll read out what the sutta says, so anokasari. Uh, we'll also look at what it means to roam about in a boat, niketasari, 
and then to roam about without an abode, aniketasari. So the first one, so this is part two, so 2.1, roaming about homeless, anokasari, and how halt older does one roam about homeless? The desire, lust, delight, and craving, the engagement and clinging, the mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding the form element, the feeling element, the perception element, the volitional formations element, and consciousness element, these have all been abandoned by the targeta, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, obliterated, so that there are no more subject to future arising. Therefore, the Tathagata is called one who roams about homeless. It is in such a way that one roams about homeless. So when we look at this, we look at desire, chanda, lust, raga, delight, nandi, craving, panha, what we just went through in the satrahara, the four nutriments, this is what we are actually holding on to. This is what binds us. And then when you look at the engagement and clinging, all the upadhanas, so karma upadana, the clinging to central pleasures, silabhata upadana, clinging to uh, observances and, and virtue, clinging to views, and then clinging uh, to this self sense of self. That's really what is driving all of this. And so then we look at mental standpoints like in this world, we, we stand on worldly standpoints, but these are like our skills, our children, our uh, power, you know, those sorts of things. Those are what are driving us. And then when it comes to the adherences, the glue, then it's our jobs, uh, how our kids are performing, how well they'll do, uh, you know, how much, how much assets we have. And then the underlying tendencies are what well, we're always seeking Sukha. And when there's aversion, then, then we, we seek almost like the, the painful feelings, believe it or not. And when there is ignorance, well, it's neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So a lot of this is being driven by wrong view. You know, it's rooted in Loba Dosa Moha, in greed, hatred, and delusion. And we do this through the five aggregates, through form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. So when it comes to difficulty in renunciating the world, it's very difficult for us to give up our skill. It's very difficult for us to give up our children. It's very difficult for us to give up our families. All these things where we're deeply bonded and same with our respect and power in the world and, and the glue that holds that together with our assets and accomplishments and achievements and our tendency to keep distracting and, and finding sugar out in the world. It's a very external thing that we do. We created this body because we wanted to enjoy things through our sense faculty. And so when you look at giving it up, it's very difficult. But the Tathagata, he's abandoned everything. So when it comes to uh, correct, having the correct perceptions, he has all the correct perceptions and therefore he doesn't construct. Because he doesn't construct, he has given it all up and he's cut it off so that it cannot reconstruct again. So when it's made like a palm stump, obliterated for no more future rising, it's because it's all gone, it's fully renunciated. And so that's someone that roams about homeless. 
So when we look at what we need to do when we cultivate certain meditations, it's for that reason that we're attempting to actually cultivate what the Buddha cultivates, cultivate the mind states that the noble ones, they all have cultivated in order to help us to correct that. So in terms of how we practice, there's a very good meditation for this that we are laying the foundation from. So we're not going to go through the more deep meditation in this particular session, but we'll come back to it in another session. This one is really laying the foundation. So you start to think about both the practical aspects as well as some of these terms and ideas of pulling it all together, even from other meditations. So then when it comes to roaming about in an abode, Miketasari, Venerable Mahakachana says, and how, householder, does one roam about in an abode, Miketasari? By diffusion and confinement in the abode, consisting in the science of form, the sign of sounds, the sign of odors, the sign of taste, the sign of tactile objects, the sign of mental phenomena, one is called one who roams about in a boat. So the word for sign is nimitta. So we're always looking for these nimittas in the world. We're always looking for signs that we find agreeable, pleasing, or even that we're interested in. When it comes to what Venerable uh, Mahaprabhu says is diffusion, diffusion is really this word visara. So this is you spread, expand, extend. So once you see something or hear something, you go towards it and you're trying to find out more about it so you can describe every single thing about it. And when it comes to confinement, it's almost like you've honed in on something. So the Pali word is vinibanda. So you're confined, you're bonded, you're tied, you're caught up in it. So once you've logged on onto something and looked all over it, you're just hooked on that and that's all you're interested in. So it's the same with sounds, odors, tastes, objects, mental phenomena. Even if you have taken something in through your sense faculties, but later on you're thinking about it, you can still recall all the signs. You can still recall all the descriptive things. So when we focus or hone in on something, it, it, there's no bounds in terms of how much we can go into it. So it's like when you're on the road, for example, and you see flashing lights, or even you simply hear the sirens, you would immediately go and look. Like if you're interested, you would go and look, you would seek it out, you would look at the scene, you would look at what's happening unfolding, and then you would pinpoint which bit you're really interested in, and then you would look at all of that. And so if someone was to ask you later about that, you would know everything in order to describe it was so many people, they were wearing this, it was this vehicle, and, you know, this is what was happening, and you could actually, you've grasped it. So what I find quite interesting about Niketasari, it's very much like Pamada Vihari, so it's very much like dwelling negligently, that when you don't have sense restraint, you go out through the sense bases and you pollute the mind. You feed and fuel and you keep the senses burning. So the senses are not calmed. Like when we do the metta bhavana, we always talk about Santindriya. We're calming down the senses. We're making them more peaceful, like Santa. This is the opposite. You're fueling them. You're giving them more information through the, the smells, the sounds, the sights, the taste, whatever it is. And so the senses become activated and they start to burn. 
So this is something, of course, Buddha does not recommend, neither does Venerable Mahavichana, but uh, what he what he's saying here is when you're Niketasari, you, you just aimlessly look and hear and, and go out with the sense, the sense doors. So the opposite of that that he then enunciates about is roaming without an abode, Aniketasari. So he says, and how householder does one roam about without an abode, Aniketasari? Diffusion and confinement in the abode consisting of all those things, these have all been abandoned by the Tathagata, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, obliterated, so that they are no more subject to future arising. Therefore, the Tathagata is called one who roams about without an abode. It is in such a way that one roams about without an abode. So again, if we take the similar thing that we were just speaking about, this is Apamada Vihari. So Aniketasari is very much like Apamada Vihari, like dwelling vigilantly. So we know that when we dwell vigilantly, you don't take in through the, any of the sense doors, you don't pollute the mind. And so you keep the senses very calm, very still. It's not interested. So there's no craving to go and know, to go and see, to go and touch, all those things. So this leans towards Nibbana. This is rooted more in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And so that's the inspiration for us to walk the Noble Eightfold Path. So if you remember this particular uh, slide, this looks at dwelling negligently and dwelling vigilantly. So you can see Niketasari and Aniketasari. So when you roam uh, with an abode, you are not restrained. So you're not restrained with any of these sense faculties. You go out with these sense faculties. So you start to pollute the mind because whatever you take in through any of the sense doors, it pollutes the mind. You retain it and you can turn it in your mind. So we look at the, the, the objects and we see them through our sense faculty and spaces. What, does the Buddha, what has Buddha said in this Tamada Vihari Sutra? Similar to what Venerable Mahakatana says, except a bit more explicit, the mind is polluted. There is no gladness in the mind. So no pamocha. There's no rapture. So you don't get to piti. The body does not become tranquil. That means the body is actually on alert. It's actually uh, ready to go and see, go and explore further. It, it's distracted. And then one dwells in pain and suffering. So as we know, when we're too interested in the world, whether it's through the internet or in person, we go through a lot of suffering and we come back and tell each other with lamentation how bad it is. And so the mind does not become calm. It's filled with so much filth. It's like we took a truck, we went out, and we just went to every house that is part of our village and we said, just throw some, some rubbish in. And, and so we're, we're bringing back this truck and our mind is, is filled with it. We can't concentrate, it's not calm. We don't have those peaceful faculties. And so the truth about the world, the truth that the Buddha talks about, that the noble Arahants talk about, it's not apparent to us, it's blocked. So when Buddha talks about everything in the world is false and deceptive, we're not seeing that. We're thinking, well, you know, we'll go and, go and have a look. We'll go and indulge. And so that's how you dwell negligently, which is very similar to dwelling, uh, roaming about without with an abode. And so when we look at Anikitasari, which is 
dwelling without an abode, which is the Buddha, the noble Arahants, then this is when you dwell vigilantly. So as we know, we've been through this before, when you have restraint, the mind is not polluted. And so when the mind is not polluted, you're not taking any, any sense objects in, you're not going out externally and then creating your internal world with all this pollution. So the mind is unpolluted. And so there is pamoja, there's gladness in the mind. It's more empty. It's closer to empty if you take in less. Don't we know that when we meditate, if we have cleaned our minds, we know that the mind is much easier to concentrate. There's happiness in the mind. And so it becomes more after going through even some of these meditations that we do, we go through this same process. There's gladness and there's rapture. The body becomes very tranquil, relaxed. And then you dwell in happiness. It's the Sukha Viharana. And we know that sense restraint is Sukha Bhagya. It's associated with this happiness. So then the mind becomes calm and concentrated, and then you can see the truth. So this is how you dwell vigilantly or roam without an abode. So this is what we're training towards. So a lot of things come together with this when we when we study this Haladakani uh, Sutta, that it's, it's something very, very useful. What we see is that if we keep roaming, if we keep going out through the sense faculties, we externally create our world and then we bring it internally into our minds. Therefore, there's a lot of dukkha, a lot of dukkha in the mind. And you really see the first noble truth in this, that if we birth into the world, we're subject to old age, sickness and death, we know this. But then if we keep going out into the world trying to fix it, we experience more dukkha. Then there's uh, dhammanasa, the sadness, the sorka, the sorrow, and then we keep lamenting on and on. Why is it like this? Oh, no. And then we despair. And constantly we go through the ups and downs of separated from what is pleasing and united with what is displeasing. We don't get what we want time and time again. So in contrast, you need to know that if you practice the way of the noble ones, then there is more happiness in the mind, even in the present existence. And of course, in following this path, this is what helps us to truly see that we can't fix these things by craving external things that are always going to chatter, subject to old age, sickness and death. They're always shattering. We reconstruct over and over again that continues to break down, disintegrates. So nothing we, we construct is able to sustain any kind of long-lasting happiness. And that's why Buddha always points us back to Nibbana. The more sad that we have, the more we can see that because we can't directly know Nibbana ourselves, but we can get a taste of it in our meditation. So just to um, re-emphasize about the world, there are a number of suttas that are quite helpful. So I'm going to go through two. The first one is the world. So this is the Loka Sutta. It's in Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter one, discourse number 70. It's like a riddle. And this is in the Deva um, uh, the chapter on devas and the riddle is in what has the world arisen in what does it form intimacy by grasping what is the world afflicted in regard to what so when the answer comes the answer is in six has the world arisen in six it forms intimacy by grasping the world with six the world is afflicted in regard to six so the way you could possibly understand this is 
the world arises through our sixth sense faculties. So we construct our world through our sixth sense faculties. Intimacy is formed also through our sixth sense faculties. So whatever we get close to, proximate to, interested in, it's also through our sixth sense faculties. When we grasp the world through the sixth sense faculties, then the world is also troubled by the same. So whatever we construct with these six sense faculties, we know they're a subject to disintegrate, break, shatter. But it doesn't matter what we construct, it has the same result. We take that a little further, another teaching of the Buddha, Loka Panha Sutta. Again, this is a question about the world. So a bhikkhu approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said the world, the world. In what way, Venerable Sir, is it said the world? And so Buddha's answer is very compelling. Buddha says, it is disintegrating. So it's paloka, uh, bhikkhu. Therefore, it is called the world. And what is disintegrating? The eye bhikkhu is disintegrating. Forms are disintegrating. Eye consciousness is disintegrating. Eye contact is disintegrating. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as a condition, that too is disintegrating. And then he goes through the ear all the way, nose, tongue, body and mind with the same thing. That whatever feeling arises with that mind contact as a condition, that too is disintegrating. So it is disintegrating, therefore it is called the world. So when you think about what we take refuge in, like what we take delight in, what we call the world, we're taking delight in something that is disintegrating time and time again. And that is so powerful when you think about our sense faculties are disintegrating, the objects that we're looking at or tasting, touching, whatever, they're all disintegrating. The consciousness that we're applying at that moment, whether it's through the eye, ears, nose, tongue, body, is also disintegrating. It's all disintegrating. And so what we have taken refuge in is all disintegrating, it's paloka. So as much as that is very powerful, it is still difficult for us to see because when we look at our family members, we don't see that. We, we think their death is so far away. You know, we think uh, even, even with sickness, we still think it's far away. Even during this particular time, we still think it's far away. Same with the objects that we own. Same with many, many things that, that are part of our lives. So it can be very, very straightforward if, if you pierce this particular teaching, for example, but it's not so simple. Our minds, if you really think about it, loka, another way of looking at it that is a good contemplation is that loka is polluting the mind, darkening it, clouding it through our sense faculties. That includes the mind itself. What Buddha teaches is more about aloka, brightening. Even white light has this way of neutralizing everything. It becomes almost like all the same. So he keeps instructing about peaceful sense faculties because he's encouraging aloka, the clean mind, the bright mind, the empty mind, the calm mind. It's only when you get to the higher concentrations do you abandon any of the hindrances, the sicknesses in the mind, the defilements. When you have access to the higher concentrations, you can develop those with the perception of light. So aloka can also be taken in that way. 
So it makes sense. If the mind is already polluted, we go more to pollute again in the world. If the mind is clean, you notice when you come out of a very good meditation, you don't feel like going back out into what you were usually doing before. If you have a very good meditation, you don't come out and seek intimacy with people. You don't come out and want to go directly into the internet or turn on the television. You're actually quite peaceful. The mind doesn't need anything, doesn't need any stimulation. But if the mind is tired, if the mind is dirty, if the mind is caught up, it will naturally go, oh, I'll turn on the TV, I'll, I'll go and look in the fridge, I'll, I'll go and uh, go and annoy some people, something like that. It, it, it's, there's a difference. When the mind is bright, it's not sick with greed, hatred and delusion. But when it is sick, it goes back out and looks for more. So it's important to see that. So this is like the second part of how Venkul Mahavachan explains, and we've added a bit more to it to help us to extend that. So part three of Venerable Mahakatana's explanation is about the three verses in, in the Buddha's verse. So, so far, we only really went through the first line of that, that verse, Anikitasari, that you roam about um, with an abode, in our case, and in the Buddha's case or the Muni's case, you roam about without a, an abode and you've left home. In our case, we have a home and we're still roaming about looking for more abodes, where to look, where we're interested, where to get caught. So this third part is really about the rest of that verse, that uh, we really don't want to be intimate in the village, that we want to be rid of central pleasures, we don't want to entertain expectations of the future and we don't want to engage in dispute. So Venerable Mahakachana, we're going to go through each of these. He actually asks us to really think about this external world that we keep going towards, not internal. Buddha's teaching, if you remember, all these teachings are always to calm the internal, to go inwards. Our tendency having created this body, which is a sense pleasure seeking device, is really always to go out. So that's one thing you can think of. Don't go out, go inwards. And uh, don't keep using this body as a sense pleasure device. And, you know, start to, to enjoy solitude without speaking, without always trying to find people to, to complicate, make the life complex and really look at purifying the mind. So there's a big difference. So when you look at this next part, as with all of the teachings, you can look at it simply from day-to-day -day experience. So we can look at even these terms from day-to-day -day experience, but we can also always look at it from the bigger picture, that if we want to stay bound to samsara, then we are intimate in the village. So this top line, we are happy to be with the sense pleasures, which includes the people in our lives are, are actually karma, sense pleasures. Uh, we, we're prepared to entertain the future, make plans, and we're engaging people in dispute to defend or, or to just hold on to strong views. And so that means we're bound to future arising. But the Buddha's way, developing the Noble Eightfold Path, walking the same footsteps as the Noble Arahants, is not to take delight in the world by not being intimate, ridding ourselves of sensual pleasure through wisdom, being without expectations and not engaging in dispute, like letting go of these strong views about whatever it is. So this is what we're going to explore now. 
So let's look at each component. So intimate in the village, Game Santava Jato Hoti. So, and how householder is one intimate in the village? Here, householder, someone lives in association with lay people. He rejoices with them and sorrows with them. He is happy when they are happy and sad when they are sad. And he involves himself in their affairs and duties. It is in such a way that one is intimate in the village. And how householder is one intimate with none in the village? Here, householder, a bhikkhu, does not live in association with lay people. He does not rejoice with them or sorrow with them. He is not happy when they are happy and sad when they are sad. And he does not involve himself in their affairs and duties. It is in such a way that one is intimate with none in the village. So the best way to understand this is always to bring examples from our daily life. So we know at the bigger picture level, if we're intimate in the village, then the craving is there. The abhinandati, abhivatati, ajosayati is always there. So if we were to die in the moment that we're intimate in the village, happy, sad with the village, clinging to knowing about our villages, however, whatever is in our world, then we will want to create another body to do that. It can be as simple as wanting to come back and enjoy a meal together, coming back to know what happened to, to each other. But in everyday life, there are also challenges. So Venhor Margitani is asking us to disentangle ourselves gradually by seeing how these entanglements, if we keep bonding in a more strong way and not seeing the sense of un unbinding ourselves, then it's going to be a lot of dukkha for us. So it's encouraging us to, to look at this. So for us as lay people, we live in association with other lay people. That is a fact. We have families, we have groups, we have colleagues, we have teams, we have clubs. We have professional associations. We have uh, old, old uh, school friends, you know, groups and associations like that, and much, much more. We have lots of, lots of groups of different friends. What drives our lives as lay householders is very much intimacy with groups. So for most of us, if not all of us, that's how we define our lives. I belong to this family. I belong to this group of friends. I belong to this professional association. So... Intimacy, this Pali word is Sankhava. And Buddha and Venerable Mahachana, they often associate it with familiarity, proximity, so like closeness, uh, even seeking attention, uh, giving time, prioritizing, that, that can be part of intimacy. So the very important thing is when you contemplate this part of the sutta, is really to acknowledge how difficult it is to renunciate this intimacy. That in this present life, because we don't uh, have much time, because we have so many responsibilities and duties, that is also the reason why we can't take solitude, that we are bound to our responsibilities and duties. We're bound to even the experience with our groups. So if you think about when we celebrate, we come together to eat. We come together to celebrate when things are, are difficult. We also call each other up and tell, oh, it's so bad. What do we do? How do we tackle this? And it's all bound up with intimacy. And when it comes to the end of our lives, we have to know that we have to give these up anyway. 
So do we make it more difficult in this lifetime by making those bonds stronger, by seeking a lot of acceptance through these bonds even, so that we suffer more in this life and by the end of it, we can't even let go. So we have to ask ourselves that question. This is still karma, you know, family, groups, it's still sensual pleasures. So I think the most honest thing is to admit that it's not easy. But the counterpart to that is to look at how dangerous it is if we don't see this clearly. Buddha's always warning us about this. So it's not in the way that is we throw our family and our friends and our groups away, no. But it's how do we practice and hold it in the right way. So we'll, we'll look at that as well. So mostly I think we are too interested in other people's business. So when we're on phone calls, we're always asking about things. When you start to practice, you're, you become less interested because you know the more you know, the more you pollute the mind and the more you care, the more you're concerned, but not necessarily in the right way. It doesn't mean you don't help people, but at the appropriate time, you don't need to know A to Z of anybody's business, even our family members. So it's good to be brutally honest about this, how much we put into our minds about other people's lives. And it makes it very difficult for us to meditate. We become quite deluded. We raise intimacy in the village above Nibbana. And it, it's a fact. It, it needs to be seen. And where does this really come from? It really comes from me and mine. So this Atta always wants to know. It always wants to add. It always wants to be part of. But when, when you really examine Atta, you, you also understand that all these things are subject to impermanence. They're not lasting. They're not within our control. So whatever you are adding to Atta, it's not within your control. It only leads to Dukkha. So there's always this painfulness in change that exists when you cling to something that, that is, is always breaking down. It's always shattering. It's disintegrating, as the Buddha says. What happens when you start practicing is that you start to reduce your footprint in terms of knowing a lot about people around you. So you still attend to your children, your partner, your parents, the work and everything, but you start to reduce, almost like shrink the amount of pollution in the mind and shrink in, in the sense of how much bondage you want to keep cultivating with people. So you're still bonded because you're, family, your friendships, but you reduce the almost like the, the really strong bonds, but it comes in the back door. So once you start practicing, you realize it comes in in different ways. So you may not pollute with a lot of people, but you pollute with other things in the world. So you become more interested in what's happening in different countries. You start uh, being interested in politics. You start being interested in all sorts of things. So Maybe you were interested before, but sometimes it moves the focus from the immediacy of it to all these other things. And so that's also where it comes and bites you, that suddenly you're always going through portals of group chats and social media, the internet, uh, forums, you're commenting. And so you look at your habit tendencies and look at, am I creating villages in other places? How often do I chat the group, uh, check the group chats? How often do I go to 
chat rooms and write comments? How often do I go to conspiracy websites? How often do I go and look at the stock market? How often do I go and look at investment forums or political forums, news? What do I usually talk about? What am I interested in? That's how you also look at intimacy that comes in the back door in a different way. But sometimes we, we give up the certain people in our lives. They just kind of fall away. But then they come back in other ways. And so it's also to look out for that. So part of this is really investigating and see whether there's anything there that is, that is useful. So you can start to reduce the intimacy in the village. The village is really whatever you construct as your village, whether it's your family, your friends. It could be websites. It could be views, strong views. And so you gravitate towards groups with those views or you gravitate towards groups that you oppose their views. Same thing. So you, you just keep creating this kind of intimacy. Uh, Buddha and the Noble Arahants, they, they don't cling to any of those things at all. No intimacy. Yet they have kindness and politeness to each other. When you think about cultivating metta, if you have intimacy in the village, it's a little bit like uh, hankering for families and groups. In metta, we say we don't hanker for families and groups. We say, kure su we say that because we don't want to have any boundaries or, or preferences around people. We want to be able to uh, spread unlimited metta to everyone, all living beings in the world. But if you have intimacy, that's where it breeds preferences. It breeds, I like this, I don't like that. So you become stingy. You have macharya towards this group versus that group. So that's why you also see intimacy in the village blocks the doorway to to metta, upper, metta mana, unlimited metta. So we can understand this further by even going to the Chandukama Sutta. Some of you may know this sutta. And this is really Buddha was using Venerable Mahakasapa as the role model here because he was very good when approaching families. So it gives us very helpful direction about how we are to behave with our families, knowing the danger of having very strong bonds to families and groups. So Buddha says, because you should approach families like the moon, drawing back body and mind, always acting like newcomers, courteous towards families or groups, just as a man looking down an old well, a precipice or a steep riverbank would draw back the body and mind. So too, because should you approach families or groups? So Venerable Mahakasapa, he, he had that. He was very good when visiting. And so he was always held out by the Buddha, be like, you know, Venerable Mahakasapa in that respect. So uh, when we look at drawing back the body and mind, what is Buddha su suggesting here? Well, he's really suggesting not to be physically close. So the hugging and the kissing and the going arm in arm, it's not recommended not if you want to reduce the bondage. Same with mentally attached, that if you mentally always think about certain people, that's not very helpful. It will only lead to, to suffering. So what he's recommending is staying more detached, you know, holding yourself slightly aloof. So there isn't any suggestion of, of being so warm-hearted, I suppose, in, in a physical and mental sense. But that doesn't mean there's no kindness. So as, as we'll see, he talks about being kind and polite. So the next thing that he says is acting, always acting like newcomers. 
So Navika is like a perpetual, or Nita Navika is like perpetual newcomer. So Navika is this newcomer. It suggests keep every interaction fresh. You know, when you think about your families, think of it fresh. Don't let down your guard. Don't be too familiar. So this is again about intimacy. Intimacy with if we really look at traditionally our relationships. We let our guard down the most with the people that we are the most close to. So it's normally our family and our best friends. We don't. We're not so uh, intimate in terms of even the the physical closeness with our work colleagues, by example, or professional associations. But when you think about families and friends, even particular favorite colleagues, the recommendation here is to keep it fresh. You go into a, a meeting, you go into a, a celebration, you keep it fresh. You don't remember all the details about a person. You, you keep it fresh. So that's a very interesting one because when you actually try it, it's not so easy. Uh, it's always you remember the habit tendencies and, and things about your loved ones. But it's a very interesting practice to actually uh, develop because then uh, you actually listen more and you listen more attentively without taking for granted what someone is about to say. And if they do the same thing, it also makes for quite healthy relationships. Then the third one is courteous towards families or groups. So just because you draw back, as we were saying, it doesn't mean you're rude, doesn't mean you're impolite. Instead, I think when it says courteousness, we know this as a method quality that through body, speech, and mind, we are apagable. There's politeness in, in our bodily action. There's politeness in our speech. There's politeness in our mind. Now, with people that we're familiar with, we can let our guard down. We can speak without much mindfulness. And when that happens, it can also hurt people, knowingly or unknowingly. Same with our bodily actions. We have a tendency to just let it all hang out. So... This can be very useful in terms of being, being having more metta. And it becomes more uniform method to every single group or family that you come across, not, not just your own, like just across the board with, with all these different people that you come across. And then the last bit is the simile that would be applies, which is just as a person looks down an old well, a precipice or a steep riverbank. So it implies that you're in a precarious situation each and every time. Now, you think about it. Every time we meet up with family, friends, how much do we think we're in danger? We don't. We actually think that, it, oh, this is safety. This is great. But Buddha's giving you a different simile. He's saying, be very careful. It's risky. It's a slippery slope. So this too is very, very helpful to turn that one around, to actually see when you're with your partner, it's dangerous because body, speech, and mind can sleep. Preferences can arise. Same with family, same with friends, same with uh, preferred colleagues. And so when you think about it that way, Chandupa Masutra can be very, very helpful. So the picture you get is one of risk with intimacy. And the risk is because you can misapprehend. There's a lot of mind-making, uh, mamankara, and what Buddha always says is that that's a very strong atta, very strong perception of me and mine. If you die at the moment of strongly holding to me and mine, you can go straight to the hells. 
So it's actually very important. That's why, why Buddha emphasizes this, why Venerable Makachan is explaining in this way about intimacy with the village. Another sutta that um, complements this is the one straight after the Chandukuma Sutta. If you're interested, it's the uh, Kulupaka Sutta. And it's very similar. Also, Venerable Makachan is the role model. Uh, but the key thing is not to approach families with the expectation of gifts or respect. And so again, you know, sometimes we, we experience a lot of dukkha when we don't think we get a lot of respect from, you know, certain family members and uh, certain groups. And, and so we suffer a lot. And so it's good to, to actually adopt some of these things that Venerable Mahaprabhu and also the Buddha is saying to actually not uh, be so intimate and not have expectations because of that in intimacy. So a good thing to look at now is what Buddha means by a sage, because that's what is referred to in this, this verse, that a muni uh, does not indulge in intimacy with anyone. And so when we look at a, a sage, a muni, then there are a number of suttas in the sutta particular about this, but the Moneya sutta really talks about a sage in body, a sage in speech, a sage in mind, and without pain. So this is the benchmark. That's what they call a sage. You're, you're accomplished in sagacity. You've given up everything. So this is the Buddha. The ultimate muni muni is, is I think, what is called. And then you have arahant munis, and uh, you also have pacheka munis as well. So you have the arahants who are munis, you have the private Buddhas, the pacheka Buddhas who are munis. But then I think there's also reference in the Mahanidesa uh, and Chulanidesa to three other kinds, which is the Agara Muni, which is lay people who have sadda towards the Buddha and, and are practicing. We have the uh, Anagara uh, Muni, which is, I guess, monks and nuns, those who have ordained. And then you have the Seka Muni, who are the ones that have realized path and fruit. So the, the different uh, noble disciples like that, lay and monastic, who are practicing and they've realized different stages of the path. But essentially what's important here is that a muni does not indulge in bodily uh, unwholesomeness. So when you are sage in body, you abstain from killing and taking what is not given and sexual activity. In terms of vachi, in terms of the verbal, you abstain from false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech and uh, idle chatter, the frivolous speech. And then when it comes to the mind, the mental scarcity, this is destruction of all the taints you've realised with direct knowledge. And in this life, the taint is liberation of mind. So Cheto Bimoki and Panya Bimoki, liberation by wisdom. You enter in, into it and you dwell in it. So that's the what a Muni, uh, actually one who is completed, has. What's interesting for us to know about the true Muni is that the true Muni does not, it has the cessation of all sankharas, so kaya sankhara, vachi sankhara, uh, and mano sankhara. So it is like sankhara nivoda, really. And that's the thing for us to remember as our benchmark. When we're out in the world, we're always constructing. We're constructing through form, feeling, perception, and you know, volitional formations as well, all the stories we tell. It adds to our construction. So when we meditate, even if you at this moment were to close your eyes and you would just say, I'm not taking anything outside of Nibbana, so I'm not going to take anything in the world. I'm not going to have Kaya Sankharas. So there's a cessation of Kaya Sankhara, the cessation of verbal, the 
the Vachi Sankara, and I'm not going to have anything in the mind. So Mono Sankara, you just quieten them all down. There's no me and mine in any of the perceptions. There's no me and mine in any of the volitional formations, the Sankaras. Everything is still calm. Even in those few moments, you trust in the Buddha, then you're like a muni. That's, that's what it's like. Even when we go to the higher concentrations, it's closer to it. So in many ways, it's quite good because when the mind is like that, there is no abhinandati, abhivadati, adrosayati. It's the opposite. You nabhinandati, nabhivadati, adrosayati, the sanyas, the sankharas. So just for a few moments, it's simply like that. That's closer to a muni. So we can move on to the next bit, which is this uh, not rid of sensual pleasures. So we all have an understanding about this, but let's go through it anyway. And how householder is one not rid of sensual pleasures? So this is kamehi aritohoti. That means we are not devoid of lust, desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving in regard to sensual pleasures. It is in such a way that one is not rid of sensual pleasures. And then Venerable Chana goes on, and how householder is one rid of sensual pleasures? So that means you are devoid, you're free of lust, desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving in regard to sensual pleasures. It is in such a way that one is rid of sensual pleasures. So as we said before, we created this human body in order to seek pleasure. This is a pleasure-seeking device. We have the faculties to seek pleasure, the eye, the ears, and nose, the tongue. That's why every time we say in the metta bhavana, we say we don't want to construct another body to, and come back into a mother's womb, sorry, and then construct another body. It's because we actually see when we calm the sense faculties, we are not desiring in the future to do this again. That's the key thing. So when you look at, you really admit, I have created this body knowingly or unknowingly through craving for sensual pleasures. That is what I'm trying to do. I came back to experience through the ear, eyes, nose, tongue, body and mind, sensual pleasures. This is all the people, all the things, all the, all the, all the things that we, we are currently imbued with. So we want that sense experience. So if we admit that, that's very helpful towards our practice, that we don't want to become caught in this net again, you know, to birth more sense faculties and to birth a body, very hard to come to human birth, therefore most likely in lower, lower births. So when it comes to sensual pleasures, it's always a bit like seeing things like an amusement park. We look around and immediately through our perception, we want to go something towards what we find agreeable. And so whether it's seeing it, hearing it, smelling it, tasting it, touching it, what, what have you, we start to measure. When we're in an amusement park, we go, I like that ride, I like that food, I like this, what are they doing? And so you start to measure and go, I like that, I want it like that. And so there's a greed that is actually imbuing that. So with these perceptions, the central thoughts arise, it connects with old memories of enjoyable times, your mind gets established there. You keep seeking that mental contact. You want that good feeling. 
you have the desire for it, then the craving arises. So Abhinandati, Abhivadati, Ajusayatitati. And then you start to burn. So with sensual pleasures, you always burn. And then you yearn some more and you keep seeking. You keep seeking. Once it slides, you keep seeking again. And when you get it, you feel like you gain something and you have more lust for it and then on and on. So we suffer the most when sensual pleasures decline, when they disintegrate. They also decline because natural disasters, when they're taken from us by theft, even when relatives take them from us or when they don't last, when they crumble. So we always experience vipranamadukkha with sensual pleasures. And so what, what happens when that, when that happens? We had the coveting towards it. Then you go straight to Dhammanasa, whether it's uh, that formula or whether it has declined and then you go through the sorka, the, the sorrow of having lost it after sadness. And so all these things, these central objects, they're like the people in our lives. They're all our possessions, our material possessions, the food, the animals, all the agreeable sounds the smells, the taste, all of it, you know, our investments, our gold, our money, even our towns, you know, literally our, our, our birth town even. So we need to know that when it comes to sensual pleasure, when we do these meditations, we need to know the bliss of leading towards Nibbana. This helps us to see something. When we're in the cow dung, we always think, oh, this is good. You know, all these sensual pleasures. When we experience, like in the Dukkha Padipadadanda, being a painful uh, practice with slow realization, or any of these good meditations, when we taste Nibbana through the higher concentration, we know there's something that is more lasting. There's something that is different, different kind of, of happiness, one that won't slide eventually when we, when we actually finish it off. But we need to, to remember there is something better than central pleasures. The Buddha also gives us different ways of looking at this. Buddha has similes like chain of bones. If we contemplate central pleasures like chain of bones, we don't get much gratification from a chain of bones, a grass torch. There's always a hot burning trail that's left, you know, with the grass torch. Charcoal pit, we get scorched in a charcoal pit. It's a dream. So that means it's transient and can't really hold on to a dream. Borrowed goods, very temporary. Fruits on a tree. You know, this always breaks off and gets damaged. Butcher's knife and chopping block. You know, we get cut up. The, the sword stake, this is piercing. The snake's head is danger. And then when you think about the flame, any flame causes uh, pain and torment. So we don't often think about our families, our material possessions in any of these similes. The Buddha recommends it when it comes to central pleasures to see it that way so that you're able to draw back, not to keep grasping so tightly to it. So the other way, of course, is through our meditations, to be able to see it that way when we recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, recollect generosity to actually go against just accumulating and, and being stingy things like that and so of course when you develop the path when you enter the stream it's most helpful because you eradicate the central pleasures that lead to the miserable realms when you're once returning you eradicate the core central pleasure when you're non-returner you you eradicate the, the residual ones and then as a arahant you eradicate them entirely so we remember 
you know, the, the person that goes with the stream is happy to be uncontrolled with sensual pleasures. They, they actually don't want to get rid of them. You want to enjoy them and you want to come back to them. So if you come back to them, then you come back to birth, old age, and of course, more, more, um, more dukkha. And of course, keep craving, keep craving. So you're with the stream. And so as sages, we're not, we're not inclined to do that. We're not training to do that. We're training to go against that. So that means we establish our mindfulness to see things very clearly. Actually, to see the perversion of asuba is very helpful. And therefore, we don't resort to central pleasures to fix any dukkha that we're, we're experiencing. And we don't incline towards bad deeds as a result of giving up central pleasures and not indulging in them. And, and so what happens is we go against the stream. And I think that's the most difficult thing, that even if you're a so-called advanced practitioner, you can admit that it's painful to bear with some of the conditions we have to bear with, that it's easier to indulge in sensual pleasures, whether it's going onto the internet or eating something or uh, being with, with people. It's easier than bearing with what, what is actually uh, in the mind or even the external conditions. It's hard to bear with them. And so we often turn to central pleasures. The first thing is to really admit that and then you can start to work with it. Because otherwise what happens is you think, oh, you know, it's fine. I'm actually, I don't go into central pleasures. But through the back door, there are other things that are coming into the mind and you are still imbued with central pleasures. And the most important thing is not to be dusila. Like when we have these uh, issues, is not to be dusila. So the third one is entertaining expectations. Now, all of these are linked, of course, that if you're intimate in the village and you uh, have sensual pleasures, then you always make plans. Entertaining expectations has a lot to do with making plans. That when we... Uh, Think about the future, this is what we do. So Behumatana says, and how householder does one entertain expectations? Here, householder, someone thinks, may I have such a form in the future? May I have such feeling in the future? May I have, have such perception in the future? May I have such volitional formations in the future? And may I have such consciousness in the future? It is in such a way that one entertains expectations. And so when you're without expectations, you don't entertain any of that. So the bigger picture is that if we make plans, and usually we hold quite strongly to our plans, it usually means that we intend, knowingly or unknowingly, to come back into another birth, usually back into a mother's womb, which usually means human realm or lower. So when we crave any of the, the nutrients, then we are making plans and have these future expectations. So consciousness will establish in any of those homes, form, feeling, perception, and volitional formation. So you activate dependent arising. Now, in our current existence, if you just take our present existence, we make a lot of plans. Our underlying tendency and conditioning is to make plans. So we make plans for today. We make plans for tomorrow. We make plans a week ahead. We have one-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans, and longer. You know, these are our aspirations as well. 
So we hold on to them. If you really remember about making plans, we hold very strongly to them and we obsess about them, can't let go of them. So we're highly conditioned to do this. So for example, it may be, may I graduate from high school? If you're a young person, may I graduate from high school with really good results and then enter higher education? Or maybe may I study abroad? If it's uh, an adult then, or, or you're still a student, you could say, may I become a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer? Or may I save and buy a house? May I find a husband or a wife and get married? May I have children? May I make investments and they all pay off? You know, may I sustain my current existence the way I like it without losing any of my assets? May I be respected in the job and look forward to, to promotions? May I not get sick? May I be reborn in a deva realm? So you can see there are many, many different types of things that we aspire to and then we make a plan. So if you have a plan to say buy a house, then you make a plan to save and work and to maybe get a promotion to save more money and then to pay it off. But that plan may be you can't buy it now, you buy it later. Even to get married and have kids, same thing. We even have plans with the assets that we have, who we're going to give them to, what we're going to do with them all kinds of things like that. In the process of making plans, what we don't see is that we can become very docile because through our actions and speech, we don't know that there may be stealing, there may be killing, there may be wrong speech, we may be lying because we're taking something outside of Nibbana and strongly holding to it. There might be divisiveness in how we speak about things. So the planning process, this, this having expectations brings with it a lot of docile. And it's quite a deep one. One needs to really look at it. So effectively, we yearn for something in the future, expecting happiness, or we have a fear of losing something, like our status quo, because we like what we have, and we don't want to experience the dukkha of that if we lose it. So there is some wrong view in there. Like with all these things, when we, we don't get it right, we usually, the, the strongest one is always Atta, me and mine. And so from that, we always want to add to Atta. These future expectations is like the adding to Atta. We don't see that these things don't last. We don't see that they're subject to change, whether it's aging. We don't see that we experience the painfulness in change. And so it is not actually worth taking as me and mine. That is the strongest thing to overcome, this. So we end up going the wrong way all the time. We go the wrong way through desire for something about samsara. We go the wrong way with hatred when it's life. We don't get what we want or we can't hold on to it. We go the wrong way with fear because we don't want to lose it. We go the wrong way due to ignorance uh, because or delusion because uh, out of ignorance, we're still holding on to all these things that are shattering, disintegrating. So you can see our worldly standpoints are what is driving that. So if it's our skill, we're trying to develop skill. We're trying to get certain jobs, you know, which is the glue. In terms of, you know, having family, it's also the same things, the children and the things surrounding our children. That's what drives us. Often it is around the glue. Why we can't come to Dhamma is often around that. Why we can't sustain in Dhamma is also because of that. And that's where the imbalances come and the conflict comes. They're meant to conflict because they're going in different directions. One is 
bound in samsara and bound back to samsara. The other one is letting go of samsara, not coming back into this world anymore, like the Tathagata, the noble ones. So there's some very, very important dhamma in this one. So the last one that Venerable Mahakatana talks about is the engaging people in dispute. So Patang Vigaya Janena Kata. So with this, Venerable Mahakatana says, and how householder does one engage people in dispute? Here, householder, someone engages in such talk as this. You don't understand this Dhamma and discipline. I understand this Dhamma and discipline. What? You understand this Dhamma and discipline? You're practicing wrongly. I'm practicing rightly. What should have been said before you said after? What should have been said after you said before? I'm consistent, you're inconsistent. What you took so long to think out has been overturned. Your thesis has been refused. Go off to rescue your thesis for you're defeated or disentangle yourself if you can. It is in such a way that one engages people in dispute. And then he goes on to talk about the householder that doesn't engage people in dispute, so doesn't say any of those things, actually abandons all of that foolish kind of thing. And I think we're all familiar when you when you read this out, I mean Benwal Mahakatana is spot on. When he says that, you 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 know exactly what that is about. That we have such strong views, there's so much palasa in the mind that we cling so much to me and mine out of our views. We have so much conceit when it comes to not letting any of these views go. And this applies even in Dhamma. In Dhamma, we can have very, very strong views saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You don't understand what the Buddha said, blah, blah, blah. Or we we even out of arrogance uh, can think that we can correct what the Buddha says, or even we think that the Buddha didn't mean that, not thinking that it is actually us that doesn't understand and the same with the noble arahant. So we um, create a big mess for ourselves when it comes to this. So we see this in Dhamma groups, traditions, lineages, all this sort of stuff, but we also see it very much in the world when it's around areas of life, knowledge, science, learning. So when you look at the world right now, the world is imbued in this, a lot of disputes a lot of conflict, a lot of arguing. What you find on the internet, in the news, is always hitting you like a sala, lots of salas of aversion, of very strong views. And so it's very unwholesome if you engage in it. I think that's the, the most simple way of coming to this is don't do it. Put up the stop sign because usually the mind will say, oh, they shouldn't say that, they shouldn't do that, or it should be like this, it shouldn't be like that. But the thing is, you should hold up the stop sign and say no. And the strongest thing is always to remember all these are samsaric things that we are almost like spreading around, that we are getting imbued in. And nothing comes, there's no resolution that comes from being in dispute. So we can get in dispute in person. We can, it can even get kinetic in terms of physical fighting and everything, not just verbal. But then over the internet, What's more prevalent now is over the internet, through social media, through forums, through chats, through even debates and everything. And so household life could be the topic, it could be politics, it could be medical treatment, it could be conspiracy, it could be science, it could be about what you eat and what you shouldn't eat. 
It could be about running a business. It could be even about morality, culture, trivia, about protecting our possessions, our loved ones. It's all connected. Usually if you're intimate in the village, then you're prepared to fight in the corner of those that you care about. This is me and mine driving it. It's other that is driving the dispute. You know, there's so much mind making. It's very akusala because out of wrong view, you protect, you guard, and you fight. And then out of fear, you fight as well. When Atta is very strong, you're fearful, so you fight. You fight in your mind, even if you don't fight verbally or in person. So that's why people have very troubled minds, even if they don't go out and, and physically fight, even if they don't never say anything to anyone. But if your mind is always fighting in the mind, then you have this. And so you are caught in, in this issue. And so having strong views and opinions about something that is not associated with Nibbana is very problematic. It blocks the path. There is no metta, there is no karuna, there is no mudita, there is no upeka. In fact, in any of these things that Venuahakachana is expounding, you, you block all those doorways. And so we need to actually remember the danger of engaging in, dis in dispute that Buddha never recommends it. It's actually, if you think about right view, you have wrong view. And then with the wrong view, you have wrong intention. That means you don't renunciate your view and you have ill will and you have uh, harm or cruelty. So you don't nikamma, you don't abhiyapana, and you don't abhihinsa, you have the opposite. And so when that's there, then you're breeding defilements in your things like conceit, competition, arrogance, anger, hostility, all of it's there. All the defilements that we meditate on in, in Vatubhama Sutta, they're all there. So the Buddha and the noble Arahants, they practice for the Noble Eightfold Path. And what's really interesting about it is they, they practice the Noble Eightfold Path, they realize the, the, the Noble Eightfold Path, and from that they realize the uh, Samanyana, the right knowledge, and then from there they have the right liberation. They give up the right knowledge as part of liberating. But when you think about us, we can't even give up one small thing about something trivial. And so you remember that, that if you want to walk this path like the noble arahants, like the Buddha, you have to be, be able to let go of these silly views. And so there's so many suttas in, in the Buddha's teachings, and those are the noble arahants about quarrels, disputes, and everything. There's quite a few in the Sutta Nipata that are very helpful. Pasura Sutta, Kalaha Vivada Sutta, Chula Biuha Sutta, Mahabuha Sutta, Atadanda Sutta. It's all about quarreling, disputes, debates, taking up arms. So Buddha calls people that argue very, very foolish that you cultivate such unwholesome uh, mental, verbal, bodily action. So you're not a muni. You're the opposite of a muni. And it can escalate to much worse. You can break more uh, serious uh, in terms of the sila. And you keep swirling with the wrong views and the mental corruption. So you're driving more ignorance rather than wisdom. And you mis misapprehend the whole, the whole thing, the truth of it. And you're definitely not sharpening the spiritual faculties. You're, you're making them blunt. You're blocking the wisdom. And of course, as we said, you know, the Brahma Viharas, they don't, those doorways are not being activated.
So you veer off the path, really. Like by the end of this, if you see the jnana path, they're in an intimacy, then imbued with sensual pleasures, uh, expectations, making plans for the future, and then getting into dispute. If you see the jnana path, you see that you got the wrong view, you you you, do, you got the wrong intention, and then you practice the wrong path. It's as simple as that. So when we take anything outside of nibbana as the truth, there's always that danger. And when we prioritize those things, again, it, it can veer us off the path, delay our path. So it's very important to contemplate in this way and, and realize the importance of what, in this case, Prabhu Mahaputana is saying, but overall what the Buddha is teaching us. So then we have the concluding statement from Venerable Mahaputana. Thus, uh, householder, when it was said by the Blessed One in the questions of Magandhya, of the Atagavagga, having left home to roam without abode, in the village, the sage is intimate with none, rid of sensual pleasures, without expectations, he would not engage people in dispute. It is in such a way that the meaning of this, stated in brief by the Blessed One, should be understood in detail. So it's a, it's a lovely, lovely sutta. You can see there's lots of practical elements to it. So how do we meditate on this Haladakani sutta? There are, I mean, you could take, essentially, you could take this verse and actually just meditate on this verse without making it too complicated. You can look at if you establish consciousness in terms of that first line, having left home to roam without an abode, we remember this is not establishing consciousness in form, feeling. So you hold out your hand and the thumb touches on form is the forefinger. Middle finger is uh, feeling. The fourth finger or ring finger is the perception. And the fourth or the last one, the little finger, is the volitional formation. So rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara. If we don't allow consciousness to go into any of these, then the mind is still. The mind is nabi nandati, nabi vadati, nadrasayapitati. So that's, you get a taste of that. If you then go and confirm, like the muni, not intimate in the village with anyone, you also remember, you don't have these strong attachments, you're letting them go. You nabi nandati, nabi vadati, nadrasayapitati. Again, same thing. You can go down the, the third line, which is no sensual pleasures. You really see asuba. Embedded into our meditations are always these other meditations we've done before. So you again, danger. So you don't you don't want to go towards these things. You, you abandon them. Viraga, niroda, you know, give up the lust for them, see the cessation of them. And then you don't have any future expectations. Even something as simple as not having any plans not to plan for any of these things with family, friends, objects. In the meditation, it's very helpful because you see what that's like. There's a lightness that comes in the meditation. It is really at that point, aloka, not going out into the world, you're inwards, aloka, brightness, purity, bright light. Then, they would not engage people in dispute. What's there to argue about? If you don't cling to anything, there's nothing to argue about. If you haven't made your home in any of these places, what's there to argue about? There is no, there's not, no dispute. You are free of it. 
So it can be really, really simple. It can be quite a simple um, meditation if, if you've taken in what we've gone over in this session. Uh, the other way of looking at it is actually to just focus on these, these last four in part three of what we went, went through. That you really take your own example because the main thing is with these meditations, you make sure your mind gets happy, it gets bright. That when you see where you go wrong, you actually get the relief when you relinquish it in your mind, in your meditation. So in this respect, when it comes to these particular insight pathways, so usually what is useful is to use it as a diagnosis. So if you have a propensity to argue, it's good to start off here and work backwards. So if you, in your mind, you have very strong views about anything, about vaccines, about uh, politics, about a particular political group, about um, climate change, about how someone should raise their children, you know, anything. Um, you start off down here and you work backwards. And usually what you find is you end up concerned about someone or something, and that's the intimacy in the village. Or you can take an example from here and you work this way as well. But I find it, it's very good as a diagnosis, working backwards, but it's also very good to explore using your own examples where you go wrong. So I'll give a couple of examples. We may not have time to actually meditate on this, but I think it's worthwhile maybe just to go through a few examples. So you, when you do meditate on it, like just by using these, these four particular things that Venerable Mahakachana and the Buddha have spoken about, it can help you. So... Let's just take a person, just an average person uh, that's been affected during this pandemic. So right now, if you're intimate in the village, which we all are, we're affected if our loved ones are affected, whether they're living with us or they're living away from us. So because you can't see your, your family, you suffer. You can't travel. You can't go to conferences. You, you can't get your kids to school, maybe. You worry about people that you know and care about who are sick. So this all comes because of intimacy in the village. And you worry about the rest of the world, that you wouldn't think so, but you do. You worry about the rest of the world. And you worry about when you're on conference calls with the people you work with, when they're stressed, you're also affected because you have intimacy with your work colleagues. So that might stress you out. Or if you're interested in something about the world we live in, so at the moment, most of the world is interested in conspiracy theories. Then you go to the internet and you look up videos and, and, and forums and you speculate and you listen to all the people that are talking. Now, these people are not necessarily wise people because they're, they're talking about things that are in samsara, which, you know, false and deceptive, whether they're conspiracy or not, but they're not Nibbana, so they are false. So you spend a lot of time being intimate with all these different things. Then what happens is, well, what drives it when we have this thing with our village is we don't want to give up our freedom. We don't want to give up. Freedom can be the sense of just being able to see our loved ones, being able to travel, to meet up, to enjoy, to indulge is whatever's in our world, what, what comprises our village. We get angry because we can't access any of these things or maybe we're locked down. We can't be with the central pleasures that we want. So you can't hug anyone. You can't uh, go out for meals. You're just you're very upset. 
And then when it comes to expectations, well, in the future, you're thinking, I hope that when this passes, we can go back to the way it was before. Or you think, well, let me take take some of the good things that happened out of this. So maybe most people right now like to work from home. So you think, oh, hopefully in the future I can work from home. But then I get some of those other things back again where I can travel and I can go see people and all those things. You leave all the bad stuff like the lockdowns and the restrictions and everything, but you take only the good stuff forward. And so you might make plans even to fight for those freedoms, to fight for those things. You, you make plans to do that because you want the result that you hope for. You want that to eventuate. Whatever those plans, expectations, hopes, dreams are, and so where does that lead you? It leads you to argue. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go out and argue. It could be in your mind. You could be watching a video and you're arguing. You could be reading the news or watching the news on television and arguing, that person is wrong, how dare that politician or this person is, uh. And so you end up just arguing even within your family. If they don't share your views, you join groups that share your views, you comment online. And you share videos of those things and on and on it goes. So where does the mind get to when it gets to here? It gets to grudging, animosity, hate, uh, even fear. So a lot of the world is here right now. Uh, just using a simple example, that may not be your example, but it's, a, it's one that is for this time. And so if you were to die with this particular mind state or any of the ones in here, uh, not good. And especially if the mind is engaged in a kusula in the mind, like bad speech in the mind, not even saying it, but in the mind, lower realms. So it's not something that the Buddha is encouraging. All of this actually always is driven primarily by atta, by the sense of self, by sense of me and mine. So it's wrong view. So it's actually very dangerous. And that's what one needs to remember. And so that's why you use your example to see. Now, some of our examples may be milder. You know, so uh, if we just take an ordinary situation with a person, say you have a family to take care of, then you just look at the intimacy in the village. It could be your children, it could be your parents, it could be your extended family, your partner. So when it comes to central pleasures, the job and the, the skills that we have it's always so that we can give more to our family. You know, sometimes we think it's not for ourselves, it's for our family, it's for our children. So you use some of your money to invest so that you can give more central pleasures to your family. We don't think of them as central pleasures, but we think of them as the good education, the gadgets and things that are needed, the good food, the healthy food, the safe path driving, all those sorts of things. So that's where this comes from. But then you also plan out Am I going to have enough money for when my kids need to go to university if they need to go abroad? Or I want to give my partner a treat. Or uh, this is really good because I want to save the planet, so I want to get solar heating or something like that, solar panels. You know, all kinds of things come out of it. And because we handle money, it gets quite complex in how we actually deal with central pleasures and plan. And so when you come to entertaining expectations, what we think is, oh, will these investments pay off in the future so that I can, can you know, do everything that I mapped out for my family, you know, car for my partner, you know, new car, uh, education paid off, uh, mortgages paid off, 
uh, all these things, enough for retirement, enough for care, and, and on and on it goes. And then you end up in dispute when something goes wrong. So just off the top of my head, if something goes wrong with an investment, you know, who can you blame? Who can you uh, have a dispute with? It could be the investment broker. Or maybe your partner questions, why did you invest in that risky thing? It's too risky. And then you end up arguing about that. Even though the intention is good, it's it's just how you end up in these places without knowing what you what you're actually doing. And and it seems so real, so important, so needed, but you end up down the wrong track. Same with your kids. Your kids may ask you for something, but you can't afford it. And instead of telling them that you can't afford it, you tell them something else. And so they they get into arguments with you, thinking that it's for another reason, that you don't want them to have it. Uh, and and same and same again, you end up quarrelling. So there's many things that happen out of intimacy that lead to dispute. And so you might have different permutations of that. But the key thing about all of it is that it's rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. That's the crux of it. It's, it's rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. One really, really needs to see it. So we sometimes out of goodness towards our family we have very good intentions but we end up doing a lot of akusala and at the same time we suffer a lot we, we suffer a great deal for our family for our friends and a lot of it is if we were to choose more wisely and it is difficult to choose wisely when the mind is already corrupted but if it's possible to choose more wisely with a clean mind, then things can potentially be more easeful. They're not great, but they're easeful. So for the rest of this life, you make them more easeful until you can fully relinquish, fully renunciate the world. So contemplating Halidikani in this way, uh, eyes open as well as eyes closed. So you can do this eyes open as in, Whatever's happening in your life, you can analyze it through Haladikani Sutta. It's very, very helpful. One can progress and develop on the path in a very, um, very apparent way. And when you bring it to your meditation, it's even more powerful because those examples you start to see, you can tangibly see how you develop, you can tangibly see how you empower yourself, where you start to nabi nandati, nabi wati, you don't take the light. You don't um, welcome it, you don't remain holding. It becomes more apparent, more, more tangible. So I find working through Haladakani a very empowering meditation, a very empowering teaching, because there's a lot that one can do. It's not simply following steps. It's actually seeing how we ourselves are entangled in our worlds. And what we ourselves need to choose to do to disentangle. And what we forget, like one of the things to say before we finish is really what we forget is we are of the nature to age. We are of the nature to sicken. We are of the nature to die. We will be separated for, from everything that is pleasing to us. And we are the owners and heirs of our karma. Those five frequent recollections alongside Haladikani is so very powerful because as we are getting intimate in the village, we forget aging, sickness, death, separation from what we like, owner of our kamma. 
Same with getting, not, not being rid of sexual pleasures. Again, we forget. Aging, sickness, death. That's our nature. Separation from what we like. And same with future expectations, engaging people in dispute. Same thing. So very important. So let's finish uh, with some words from the Buddha. So this is from the Dhammapada. It says, having abandoned the dark state, the wise one cultivates the light, gone from home to homelessness or solitude, so difficult to enjoy, owning nothing, having abandoned sensual pleasures, having cleansed himself from mental defilements, there let the wise one wish for delight. Those who have minds well-developed in the means of awakening, who, having removed toxins, delight in renouncing attachments, they are radiant and completely emancipated in this world. 